Fish on. This is the New York Angler Fishing Podcast, brought to you by nyangler.com, your secret spot online. Hosted by the man who introduced New Yorkers to the world of online fishing, Mr. George Scotka. Hello and welcome everyone to this special edition of the New York Fishing Podcast. My name is George Skaka and I will be your host as I bring you the uh, Director of Marine Fisheries here in New York State, uh, Mr. John Maniscalco. Uh, We go through a number of uh, fisheries management issues. And with that said, Fisheries management is a very, very complex uh, model. There's just so much there, and it it can drill down, and it just keeps going and going and going. And, you know, I'm afraid the average listener, you know, could easily get lost in the, I don't know, hundreds of acronyms that there are across the entire fisheries management field. So for the sake of this conversation and this interview, I wanted to, uh, you know, try to give you a brief explanation, at least uh, about the subjects that we're talking about, because, you know, it just drills down and down. So, for example, you are going to hear references to the ASMFC. That is the Atlantic States Marines Fisheries Commission. And for the most part, they handle fisheries within state waters, so three miles out. So what they do is they gather all the data, they do their work. They, there are many committees, subcommittees, advisory committees. Uh, this is where your scientific work goes on. And uh, this is where they collect all the data and, and do that impossible job of uh, counting fish and locating fish and see where they're moving. So. The ASMFC, once they get all this stuff together, they sit down. Um, At this point, I will say it it does become somewhat of a a political uh, situation because, you know, you've got uh, the ASMFC represents states from Florida all the way on up the coast. It's, you know, it's the entire coast. So... Not every state has wants the same reg, you know, a bass is smaller here and a fluke is bigger there. And so there's all these micromanaging, what I like to call micromanagement, uh, you know, issues involved in fisheries management. But for the sake of this conversation, when you hear um, John or I, you know, mention the ASMFC, they make the final decision. So those states vote and they make a decision. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, There was a pushback on on certain aspects of the circle hook requirement, uh, which is coming up, uh, you know, which is in effect actually uh, this season. So four striped bass, and uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, But the... You know, the, the gist of it is, is now, uh, you know, they go back to the state and they tell the states, OK, we this is what we want you to do. Now, we want you to go to the states 
and see what they want. And then the states go back and forth and they try to come to an agreement. Um, and then they have this this other thing, which is called a conservation equivalency. So some states like uh, New Jersey uh, may end up with, you know, shorter or or you know, bigger bass, uh, you know, be, just because of they're able to come up with this conservation equivalency. So I, I could just keep going on and on, and I feel I may be losing people already. So uh, the ASMFC makes the recommendation, comes to New York and says, hey, um, you know, in the case of the circle hook, I, you know, you're not allowed to use any bait on a circle hook when you're fishing for striped bass. So this opens up this huge can of worms. You know, you have uh, a lot of people uh, that troll sandworms or, you know, artificial uh, sandworms with a little bit of bait on there uh, with J hooks. And, you know, when you do that for striped bass, for the most part, it's got to be, I don't even know, you know, obviously I don't know what the exact mortality is, but, you know, and I don't do that kind of fishing, but I know people that do, and I've been on boats, and I have done it, and I've never once seen a striped bass come up gut hooked. So, so you know, there's all these little things that, not that they don't think of them, but they can't possibly think of everything. So they hand it off to the states, and that's where we are now, in the case of the striped bass circle hook, and. I thought this was a good time uh, to speak, you know, with the DEC so we could get, you know, the actual word. You know, look, you hear everything over the Internet, Twitter, God knows what, you know, this shutting this down. You can't do this. You can't do that. Um, You know, this you're going to hear this directly from the man who does this for a living. And I'll also say and not because. You know, he took this interview because I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of people who won't take this interview. Um, for example, I've been trying to get a hold of the, the wind farm people so we could get more of an idea on what's happening with these uh, offshore windmills, which will soon, by the way, pave the entire coast. But we let's not even uh, let's not even talk about that right now. So. Uh, John does give us uh, some really good insight. Uh, We talk about, which you'll see, we talk about what to expect, uh, where we are with that circle hook, um, and many other things regarding just about every single fishery that we deal with from flounder to tau tog, you know, and uh, to striped bass and bluefish. And I would like to introduce Juice, John Maniscalco. Uh, problem is, it's like about a 15-second piece. Somehow, our control room lost it. No matter what I could do, we couldn't get it back. So we come in, we start in. Uh, we only missed just a few seconds. So I apologize to you, John, for that and to the audience. But uh, I really don't think you miss it. It wasn't a heck of a lot. Um, but I will tell you, he... Uh, you know, he does give us a lot of straight information straight from the DEC. So I'd like to welcome Mr. John Maniscalco from the New York State DEC. A lot of the regulations that 
you know, our anglers ultimately experience come down as a result of interstate fisheries mandates. And uh, it is DEC's job to uh, take whatever is being imposed by uh, Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission or the Mid-Atlantic Council and the federal government and, and implement them in New York State in such a way as to, you know, allow our anglers um, access to the fishery while at the same time achieving achieving the fishery management plan goals, which is usually to, you know, limit limit harvest, limit fishing mortality, that kind of thing. Um, so it's not always easy, uh, and I understand the process can be frustrating for anglers, but uh, we do do our best to um, listen to all parties and find that, that middle path. Okay. Um, so I, I'm currently the Bureau Chief of Marine Fisheries at New York State DEC. Um, I started my career with horseshoe crabs and lobsters, and then uh, I've moved on to fin fish and currently, you know, again, oversee all fisheries with the exception of uh, shellfish like clams and oysters. Okay. So you wouldn't uh, know too much about the uh, die-off of the, of the Peconic Bay scallops. Did they have a harvest? I don't believe they did. No, unfortunately, we've had two years of uh, very severe scallop die-offs, but that's not my area of expertise. Okay. So, no uh, as far as cause, it, you know, um, you know, and what steps we'll be taking, that would be better left for someone else to answer. Okay, great. So, you know, every year we witness or we experience changes in our fisheries regs, and you know, we know that it's that it's all you know, to try and save and protect our fisheries and to share them equitably between uh, recreational and commercial fisheries. Um, it's not the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> I mean, it's it's tough to count fish, you know. So uh, and e- even though uh, y- the managers do their best, it's it feels like it, it's trying to be micromanaged, I feel, in some ways. And there's a lot of regs that are always changing and... Um, but recently, I'm not seeing that. So, uh, in the so so, what do we see like coming forward? I mean, we're still going to be at the three blue uh, bluefish limit. Do we see any changes this year, John, uh, regarding wreck fisheries uh, minus the striped bass hook thing? We, we we can talk about that in a few. Yeah, George. A couple of points. So, we do have fisheries that seem the recreational fisheries that seem to change every year, and those are usually uh, fisheries that are associated with a, a federally managed plan. So that's your, you know, your fluke, your scup, black sea bass, for example. Those change, you know, uh, certainly in the past, almost on a on an annual basis. Um, then you have other fisheries that are managed through the commission, and usually changes for species that are managed by the commission only happen as a result of a stock assessment, which might only happen every two, three, or four years. So an example of that would be winter flounder or tautog, right? We don't change our tautog rules on an annual basis. We only change them when the uh, assessment comes out and we have to, you know, change fishing mortality, for example. Um, So for 2021, there, you know, so most of our fisher decisions are are data-driven. Um, and COVID impacted a lot of things, including uh, data collection on on recreational harvest, especially. So um, many of your anglers, your listeners are probably familiar with um, MRIP. And there's a catch sampling aspect of that program that 
didn't run uh, during May and June, certainly in New York and many other states. Um, New York State did resume some kind of limited sampling um, later in the year, maybe starting in June. Some other states did not even resume uh, sampling at all for 2020. So because there is no data and because we don't have any... um, you know, dependable estimate of what harvest was, uh, the feds have um, basically allowed status quo measures. So New York State uh, will not be making any changes to its recreational saltwater fishing regulations. And most states on the East Coast would be making only, at, you know, at, at most uh, very, very small modifications, but most states will be maintaining status quo in your status quo. Okay, great. Now, um, I also understand, I could be wrong about this, but uh, I thought I read that the Tautog uh, commercial uh, tag system that was uh, supposed to go into effect did not, or it was, or it was put off or something because of COVID. Am I right about that? Or That's correct. So uh, New York State was hoping to implement a commercial Tautog tagging program, um, which is ASMSC mandated in 2020. Um, but we were kind of getting prepared to launch that Tautog tagging program uh, and then decided to postpone it because of the many complications related to COVID. So both uh, from the DEC staffing side of things and also trying to limit, you know, what is, you know, ultimately unnecessary contact between uh, commercial fishermen and and, and staff uh, at a time, you know, when we didn't. So we have a better understanding of COVID now, but certainly uh, March and April, COVID was very, very scary. And there were lots of things that were unknown about it. And so for the safety of everybody involved, we decided to postpone that. I totally get that. Uh, we do, uh, yeah, we, we fully expect, um, you know, we're, we're moving forward with uh, implementing it for 2021. But um, we did postpone it last year. So can you explain a little bit uh, to our listeners exactly what that um, how that tag system is going to work. And I just want to add a little flavor. I think you know that uh, I'm a staunch uh, supporter, actually, for hook and line only on blackfish. Um, I've always wanted to get a count of the pots, how many are set. If you could give us an idea on, I mean, I know that, you know, this tagging program work, work well if it's similar to the striped bass program. But if you can explain to the folks uh, exactly how it works, that would be great. Sure. I mean, there are concerns about the commercial tall tag uh, fishery in terms of uh, underreported landings um, and also outright poaching. Um, uh, so tall tag is a little bit unique in that the vast majority of the value for the Tautog fishery lies in the live market. Um, and so what the hope is for this tag program is that fishermen will have to accurately report their tag usage but the, because the tags, they, they receive the tags through DEC. So in order to continue fishing, they have to accurately report on the usage of their tags. Uh, and then secondly, it's hoped that it will aid law enforcement in that when uh, law enforcement goes into a, any kind of a venue that does sell live tautog, every tautog in those tanks is going to have to have a tag through its cheek. And so obviously the trick here is finding a tag that... Um, could be put in fish, uh, and, uh, you know, would not affect the more, you know, would not affect the mortality, um, right. and allow healthy fish to continue to live. So that's the kind of the, 
the idea behind um, this live tagging program for commercial soft dogs. Okay. Um, now that we're on this subject, I'm, I know it. I always wonder why. Uh, you know, I see photos. I, I got one the other day for live tow dog at twenty four ninety nine a pound, and you know they're in tanks and they're being sold openly. Now I get you guys are undermanned, um, but you know it's right there out in the open. You know, is there ever any consequence brought against these these restaurants themselves or? I mean, not that you turn the other eye, I know that to turn the other cheek or whatever, but I, I know that, you know, it's happening. We all know it. I mean, I see pictures every day of it. Um, and I was wondering, you know, why they can get away with doing something like that continuously. Well, George, I mean, some of those fish that are caught are were legally caught and they're being right. legally sold. Um, right. If they're undersized or, you know, moving into the future, if they are not tagged, well, that would be uh, an illegally caught and an illegally sold fish. And I and that fish could be confiscated. Um, and yes, so, you know, some of this could be issued. Um, OK, so so I mean, again, the the goal, one of the major goals of the tag program is to aid enforcement in these kinds of situations. Okay. Uh, one, one more on blackfish and then uh, we'll move on. So I've been an advocate for years, as I said before, um, with getting a count or a permit system in place, similar to what you had with uh, lobster, uh, to find out who has pot. Not, I don't need to know the person, just need to know how many pots people have, you know, they should be marked, um, you know, again, like lobster. I, that's just the way I feel. I, I feel we need a count of pot. I mean, we, we all heard the stories of the part-time school teacher who's uh, got a thousand pots set. You know, they're only allowed. I mean, most of these guys, you know, you talk to, they have hundreds of pots set. They're only allowed 25 fish in a day. You know, so why do they need so many pots? Has, has the department ever considered limiting uh, the number of pots? But I guess now with the tags, you don't need to do that. But, you know, I, I really feel that we need to get a count on the pots uh, so we can get an idea, you know, on exactly how many fish are being targeted. And, and, and the other thing is, I mean, it's a good way to... Uh, for DEC possibly to generate some money. I mean, they, they should have a permit on those fish. They should be paying to take those fish. It's the same exact way they, they pay for striped bass. So uh, at least that's the way I feel. And I, I, I you know, do, do you plan on getting a hold of these pots and, and, you know, so we know whose pots are whose and, or is that not uh, in the outlook right now? So, um, I mean, fishermen have to report how many pots they're using on their vessel trip reports. Mm -hmm. um, and regulations will requ also require that fish pots be identified and buoyed. So if a, a pot does not have uh, identification with that, you know, fisherman's fisherman um, license number, then that pot is not properly marked. And if that pot does not have a buoy, then it is not properly marked. Uh, um, and, and, and our regulations do require, require that. In terms of uh, limiting the number of pots uh, each fisherman fishes, that's not something we've um, 
know, seriously considered at this point. And I will also add that, you know, pots can be used to capture other species, not just tautog. So right. um, 25 fish only really applies to tautog fisheries. Um, black sea bass has trip limits um, on a daily basis, uh, 50, 70 pounds, maybe a little lo- you know, larger in the future. Scup has trip limits of six to 800 pounds a day. Um, so, mm-hmm. um you have to consider other fisheries that those pots could be used for, not just not just blackfish alone. Okay, I got it. All right, so so pretty much things are going to be the same this year outside of this new uh, circle hook requirement, uh, which came down from ASMFC. So I just want to talk a little bit about it. I mean, you know, I can see it's great to see that. Uh, you know, you listen to the people and when the letters went out regarding the uh, tube and worm fishermen that, you know, were really concerned and because they're not gut hooking any fish. Um, so, you know, I, I saw all that. And I saw you guys were listening. I said it. I don't know if you, you check my website, but I said it from the beginning. I'm like, look, they're listening. You need to let them know, you know, what you want or what's bothering you. And, and they're going to respond. So, I see now there's like a requirement that uh, they're going to allow the uh, the tube, you know, the tube and regular, you know, J-hook uh, uh, fishery. But I did want to talk just a little bit about the uh, the choice of baits that are not allowed that the state uh, decided on. Um, first question: Did you just pull that like from the freshwater? That's what I'm wondering, because I see it's got salamanders, frogs, toads. I mean, nobody's using those in salt, you know. And and then the the one that really got me, of course, I mentioned uh, is tapioca. Now, what the heck? Who's using tapioca to catch dry bass? I guess it must be like some kind of fishery somewhere. <laughs> can, can you talk a little bit about the uh, what went into you deciding uh, what can be used and what can't be used? Um, or did you kind of just take some of the stuff from freshwater and then added a few uh, uh, freshwaters? And there's also one other thing I wanted to ask. What doe-like scented baits are? So um, take it away. <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, I guess to answer your one of your first questions is that bait definition is taken directly from freshwater. Um, and uh, it was, you know, uh, kind of a starting place. Um, so, that, you know, one thing you have to, you know, I hope your readers realize is, is striped bass. You know, you can find them in the marine district. Right. You can find them in the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. And the Hudson River does eventually transition up to, you know, essentially full, full fresh water. And uh, the marine district for striped bass uh, only goes up to um, the George Washington Bridge, and uh, so that, and then you've got this next zone, which is, you know, further north of that. Right. Um, although the so, and that's for striped bass management now. Um, and the problem we're going to encounter is the natural bait definition for freshwater will apply, right? Uh, you know, on the Hudson River for, for most of its length, where striped right. bass is fished. Yeah. So what we're going to encounter now is, uh, you know, potentially a different bait definition, um, you know, 
as soon as you cross a bridge, right? So while that's a nice clear line uh, from a enforcement perspective, it that that's one of the things that will drive an angler crazy that they can use one kind of bait here, but on the other side of that bridge, they're not going to be able to use that bait. Oh, I, I can uh, so hear it now. <laughs> not only was it a, you know, it was an easy first step for us to take the same to say, take the same bait definition, but it also would have helped enforcement and also kind of removed any kind of confusion. Now, uh, we do listen, um, and the regulation that, you know, thus far is a proposed rule, and the point of a proposed rule is to allow the public to give public comment. And we will be taking public comment on that proposed rule through March 8th. So if your okay. listeners are interested, by all means, they can provide us with input on what they think should and should not be included in the definition of natural bait, you know, in the marine district, uh, you know, specifically for striped bass. But just be aware that if we ever have to go to any kind of a bait definition uh, in the marine district, um, you know, moving forward, you know, it's likely that we're not going to want to have one definition for, you know, weak fish and one definition for striped bass. So, um, but we certainly, uh, I think we've heard a lot from our anglers. ASMSC has heard a lot from coastal anglers. Uh, we uh, fully intend to, you know, incorporate the feedback we get from ASMSC and from, from New York State's, uh, you know, recreational saltwater anglers when we kind of come up with our final rule. Um, now, I did not know the basis for tapioca, George, but I did ask some of my uh, <laughs> my biologists to work more in freshwater, uh, and they did provide me with some information. So tapioca pearls um, can be kind of soaked and cooked to become somewhat tough, mm-hmm. and uh, they can also be impregnated with color to the point where they look like fish eggs. And okay. so they're definitely used in fresh or certainly have been used in the past um, in freshwater fishing for, for things like trout. Um, so there is a use for them, certainly in freshwater fishing, but uh, I agree that it's questionable whether anyone would fish with, uh, you know, tapioca pearls all that much in saltwater. Amazing. All these years I'm doing this, I had no idea people used tapioca as bait at <laughs> never. So, um, you know, I, I'd like to take a minute or two um, to discuss the, you know, the burden which your, I, I don't know, you know, uh, how much you want to talk about enforcement, this would be up to you, but I mean, how many uh, officers, especially now with COVID, um, how, how many officers are, you know, protecting our thousand miles of shoreline? When I say protecting, doing the best job that they possibly can. I mean, you know, if, if you had the National Guard line all of Long Island, you still couldn't stop people from, from breaking these laws. You know, I, I think you'll agree they're mostly, you know, it's up to the fishermen. And um, even though um, should they break the law, they should pay for it. Most of them don't, you know, um, but but I'm curious as to uh, the situation with enforcement now in this day and age of uh, COVID. So um, I would say that dedicated marine officers have always been, uh, you know, few and far between. Um, 
And but they've also always been assisted by what we might say is uh, your more general regional officer. So marine resources might have, you know, anywhere from, you know, some somewhere in the order of four people dedicated to marine enforcement. But then the regional officers would assist them. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I and I, you know, you're correct. That's not a whole lot given the the amount of coastline. Now under COVID, uh, you know, certainly enforce our enforcement officers, just like many other parts of DEC and many other state agencies. You know, a lot of people are um, volunteering on on things related to COVID relief. Um, so you know, whether it's so the officers might be working security uh, and that kind of thing at some of our COVID testing and COVID vaccination sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so uh, what was already stretched is even, you know, further stretched under COVID. Yeah, it, it kind of feels, I mean, it, it, with what we're dealing with today and, you know, you and I talking about circle hooks and bait and, you know, five years ago, it would probably really be a big deal. But uh, today it just isn't as big a deal. But I, I will tell you, uh, and I'm sure you'll agree, there is no better stress relief than fishing and you know, to get out, get out in the air, you know, uh, can't wait for this winter to be over. And uh, so we could get back out there. Um, John, I did want to ask you, I don't know if this is in your realm or if you have any opinion on this. Um, but the the Long Island Sound is obviously going through some type of a change. I've, I've fished it now my whole entire life and I'm very old. And um, so... But and I've seen it change, you know, years ago, there were no fluke there. You know, then for 30 years, we had great fluke. And now they seem to be disappearing and more sea bass are moving in. Uh, Does the department have or do you or is there do do you folks look at at this change as it's happening? Um, You know, do you see it? Do you, you know, take that into account when making regulations or? Um, you know, like right now, the fluke fishery in the Long Island Sound, is, it seems to be going away. You know, and everything I see is the water temperatures jumped like a degree in the past decade or something um, on the bottom. So I, I was just wondering if uh, you had any, any input on that. Taking that into consideration when we're crafting regulations, I mean, you have to realize that we're crafting regulations for all of New York, and that's not just Long Island Sound. So um, I can't say we can take into consideration changes we're seeing specifically in Long Island Sound when we're crafting regulations. Um, but certainly we're, you know, we're aware that, you know, the, the ecosystem in general is changing and, uh, you know, some of those things might be uh, felt more sharply in Long Island Sound. Temperatures are certainly rising. Um, uh, you know, so my experience fluke fishing in Long Island Sound has not been great from a, a, a keeper perspective, but I've pulled up lots and lots of shorts um, from Long Island Sound, certainly. So fluke is still using Long Island Sound, um, uh, but it, you know, it might be a little harder to come across a keeper. And, you know, without doing some, you know, real analysis, it's it's difficult to kind of separate what's going on with the fluke population overall uh, with how that might differ from, you know, that segment of the fluke population that's choosing to use Long Island Sound. Um, now, we've certainly, Connecticut has that uh, trawl survey that they've been doing in Long Island Sound for a long time. And 
they did do some uh, analysis of that data. There's some uh, published articles on the work that shows that you know it's going going through uh, a you know kind of a regime shift, going from a cooler water collection of species to a warmer water collection of species. Now, fluke is you know, generally included in that warmer water collection of species. Um, and like I said, I've seen a lot of shorts, uh, right. haven't had a lot of success finding keepers, but um, certainly uh, there's been a lot of scup in Long Island Sound. There's been more sea bass than ever in Long Island Sound. Um, Absolutely. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, so things things are certainly changing. Um, there's been a lot of, plenty of bait in Long Island Sound. Um, so why, exactly why fluke are a little hard to come by, I can't tell you, but I don't think it's too attached to water temperature. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, I really don't know for certain. All right. So we basically covered, you know, most of our fish. I mean, what I see in the sound is like a gazillion porgies. You know, <laughs> they're like everywhere. Um, and I, you know, look, I, I caught some nice fluke, but it seems like that second and third wave that, that we're used to seeing, you know, I don't know, maybe, uh, Maybe they're going somewhere else. So one one other thing I want to talk about, the uh, winter flounder, a lot of people, you know, um, till this day, it's still their favorite fishery. You know, at one time, it was the number one targeted fish, you know, in all waters, right? So um, the offshore fishery, according to what I see uh, with the commercials, they, they seem to be doing fine, those fish offshore. Um, do you have any clue as to what's happening inshore with, with these flounder and, um, you know, is there any, any plan in the future to take further eggs or, I mean, I don't know how much, how much more you can do. (laughs) What are we down to one, two fish? So, um, anything on that, John? Uh, so I'm not aware of any, um, certainly interstate mandates upcoming, you know, to change. I mean, winter flounder, that stock assessment has been kind of bouncing around, you know, uh, at between 13 and 16% of kind of your target biomass for, in you know, Southern New England, at least for, for a while now. Um, and, and like you said, the ocean fishery seems to be doing better than the inshore fishery. Um, now I guess, you know, I'm, and I'm not sure how much your listeners are aware, but, you know, so while we consider it the Southern New England stock, um, you know, there's a lot of reason to believe that the fish that live in the bays are genetically distinct from the fish that live off in the ocean. And then there's also kind of a, a third contingent that actually moves in between the bay and, and the ocean. So That's you've got uh, a really complicated population structure. Um, and uh, Dr. Michael Frisk uh, is a, he's a researcher uh, at you know Stony Brook University's uh, School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences, and um, you know so he's been kind of documenting this complex population structure uh, and you know looking at the genetics of it, tagging fish and, and seeing where they go and when they return. Um, and so you know we know that fishing pressure was incredible in the 80s, right? Yeah. And certainly Ridiculous. played its role in in knocking things down. And then you kind of have, you do have this changing environment. You have warming water. Um, you might have some 
you know, pollution issues and, you know, all the other habitat damage and stressors that have prevented that, uh, that those inshore stocks from, from recovering. Um, uh, so yeah. And you kind of noted, yeah, New York state's currently at two fish and a 60 day season. Um, and, and that is incredibly restrictive and I'm not, uh, not insensitive to that fact. And I also know that the founder fishing has a special place in many people's hearts, but um, I think in order to kind of continue to protect those little remnants of um, our bay populations that we do have, I think you have to, you know, uh, continue to keep those those regulations really, really strict. Um, I'm with you. You know, and even even the fisheries that operate in the ocean, you know, at least in New York State, you've got you still have a very low trip limit for commercial fishermen, and you still have those same sixty day and two fish limits. Um, and it's all kind of uh, protecting the remnants that we still find in our base. Yeah, yeah, I totally, I, I totally agree. And you know, it's up to me. But uh, so, thing I, I wanted to ask you about is bunker. Now, I don't know if you're, you're probably aware that you know we we passed that bill years ago. Worked really hard to get the reduction boats out, um, and now we're seeing. I mean, I. I've never seen so much bait. Every year, class of bunker that you could think of. We've got whales that are, you know, what, 30 foot of water sometimes right off the beach. Um, we're seeing things that we've, we've really never seen. But I'm hearing rumblings in the background that there may be too many bunker. And when I hear that, that scares me. So... I was wondering if the department is looking at anything, because I know there was a couple of fish kills, even though they're natural. If we check the history, those, those fish kills have happened forever. Um, but I was wondering if the department is looking at anything or, I mean, I, I'm hoping that the bill we put together kind of restricts it, but uh, anything on that? Uh, so I... I haven't heard, at least in the fishery circles, anyone suggest that there's too many bunker. Um, you know, and as you know, not only uh, do the whales and a lot of the marine mammals we have around here, and the sharks depend on bunker. Striped bass also depend on bunker. Mm-hmm. And uh, the ASMSC recently moved to manage bunker uh, kind of on a multi-species basis, considering the needs of things like striped bass. Uh, and that recent 10% cut to the commercial harvest of bunker was done in order to kind of allow the bunker biomass to, you know, sustain Rebuild. that level that will yeah. support a, a larger striped bass population. So uh, I haven't, I haven't heard anything about uh, too many bunker. Um, I, okay. I think near New York state, you know, so not only do you have this map, you know, you have a really large bunker population right now, and you also have these changing ocean conditions that I don't necessarily know if we fully understand exactly why, but uh, New York State's been awash in bunker, uh, and it has led to incredible wildlife viewing opportunities. Um, oh, yeah. You know, you know everything. So uh, I think that in, in general, it's a, po- it's a positive. Um, but yes, uh, when you have a lot of bunker together, uh, and maybe things stay warm enough that those bunker don't leave, um, you know, late in the season, then you get the other side of things where you occasionally get fish kills. And, you know, and whether that's because the fish are getting too cold or whether they're, you know, they're packed together. And anytime you pack a lot of fish together, 
together, you have the potential for, you know, diseases to spread. Um, so we have had some fish kills and people certainly don't like seeing uh, dead fish on their beaches. But, um, you know, it's largely part of uh, some natural processes and we haven't seen anything uh, that um, is alarming on, at a population scale. So. Okay, well, that's, that sounds good. Uh, well, John, look, I really want to thank you for joining me here. Um, I never look forward to going to any of your hearings, no, no offense. <laughs> I think the last one I was at, I got up to speak and remember the light went on fire over my head. I thought that was uh, uh-huh. I remember that. <laughs> I thought that was a sign from above. I'm like, okay, I better get out of here. But um, yep. so, and you know, I got to hand it to you. I don't know how you do it, but uh, I, I really do appreciate the, this call and you updating our fellow New York anglers on uh, what's what's coming up and and the striped bass circle hook. Oh wait, one last thing. So I'm going to yep. give you a a scenario. Look, there's a billion scenarios, but I'm going to be going to give you one scenario. So I'm out, I'm fluke fishing, right? I have a bucktail with a piece of squid on it. I catch a slot bass. What happens? <laughs> Am I supposed to throw him okay. back, or can I put him in the boat? <laughs> you know, these are the things we always run into in fisheries management. <laughs> So, uh, I- yeah. So, uh, I mean, our regulations do address that scenario. Okay. Uh, I, I, I say the proposed rule addresses that scenario. Okay. okay. And right now the proposed rule says if you catch a bass using bait on a J hook or, or a non-circle hook, we'll say, mm-hmm. you should release that fish. That's what they says right now. Okay. Um, and, and it was written that way to kind of aid enforcement. Otherwise, everyone's going to be going for fluke or bluefish or something else other than striped bass and catching a bass, and that allows them to keep it. And the goal of the rule, or at least, you know, our intentions in implementing the rule was always to aid enforcement. Now, ASMSC um, is going to be considering that exact question. How are we going to handle the uh, legal bass caught on a non-circle hook with bait? Uh, And I think that it's likely that we will take whatever guidance they um, provide on that issue pretty seriously. Um, but, you know, right now the proposed rule would require you to throw it back. We were challenged at, at a, on that point at our Marine Resource Advisory Council. There are other commissioners on ASMSC concerned with that exact issue. And so we're de- definitely going to be looking to ASMSC for some guidance on that. Because what you have to balance there is the enforceability of the rule with, you know, uh, angler satisfaction uh so we'll, we'll see how that turns out but um you know if you have an opinion on the matter or if your your listeners have an opinion on the matter please submit comments so because we will be we will be considering a lot of comments when it comes to you know how the final rule looks on this oh that's great i'm i'm, I'm really gl- uh, glad we 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 got to that point so all right john once again i want to thank you i want to thank the dec for the uh fine job that you guys are doing in these tough conditions uh i'd like to also thank all and i know many which you know that i do that are out there right now working to, to some of your covid facilities um And I want to thank you once again for uh, joining us here. And I look forward uh, to doing this again next year or maybe before. (laughs) 
<laughs> but uh, I, I really appreciate the access, John. I appreciate everything, uh, the feedback that you've given here, because anglers really don't often you know, get, get to hear it. And if you go to a hearing, you really, it's, 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 it's tough to get anything out of them. So, um, but I, again, I appreciate it. I appreciate, uh, you taking the time and, uh, oh, one more thing. So when is your uh, new building going to be finished? You know, I keep my boat right there in the Nessequa. Oh yeah. So, uh, we expect to be moving in, I think right now I've heard somewhere in June, July, uh, Oh wow. you know, um, yeah. So. That's moving. Well, good. I'll have to stop in and say hello. <laughs> I'll knock on the door. Oh, I'll wave as I'm driving by with some fish out the window. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, John. Stay safe. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. I'd like to once again thank uh, John Maniscalco and the rest of the New York DEC. Uh, for allowing this interview. I hope to bring you more uh, from the experts here in New York and along the coast as we go along this season. I I know it's not the most listened to episode, although it's up there, uh, these fisheries management uh, episodes, but they are important. And if I reach just... You know, a handful of people that are able to open their eyes and see what the heck is going on and be involved because we need people involved, um, you know, then that I did my job. And I would I would like to close this close this out with saying that I, I've been around this thing, you know, this whole fisheries management things at a time when I swear I would go to a meeting. And I was the only person in the whole room, you know, besides the people that were there. This was, yes, it was 30 years ago. Uh, it was pre-internet days. Um, but then the RECs organized and uh, the New York Sport Fishing Federation, which is still around today, doing some uh, really good work. Um, you know, they organized and um, we were finally heard. But a lot of that was missing in the past few years. And, you know, I have to say that this change from a club or group speaking on behalf of people is no longer as effective as it was in the past. And what I mean by that is everyone has their own personal voice now, which can be heard and which is heard uh, when you're sending a email out. Uh, or maybe you're part of a survey. You know, I can tell you that New York, um, you know, was kind of on the fence about the about the slot and which way to go. And I can tell you that they watched all the surveys and they watched on all these websites and Facebook and wherever fishermen were gathering. And they can get more data on what we're doing today just by looking at it. And, and therefore, you have more access and a very strong effect by sending your comments in. So I have to tell you, I've never seen, and I don't mean any disrespect to the uh, past folks in the DEC because, you know, I always truly like those people. Um, but I, I do want to, I truly feel that we have more access today and, you know, more, it's, it's just open. So um, 
Uh, again, I want to thank the DEC and John for for coming on the show. I look forward to maybe we'll get an annual update uh, as uh, as we move into each season. And I'd also like to bring you the other the other aspects of what New York State DEC does and brings to the marine environment. I think you'd all be surprised. I mean, I know you would be surprised. So as we go through the season, please watch for these special episodes. I thank you all again to all my supporters and listeners and growing base. I truly, truly appreciate it. Please be sure to subscribe. Uh, comments are always great. So um, and please, once again, remember, I, I know now is not the time. You know, I know it's a little cold and there's a little, little ice. And if you're like me, you don't like to fish like that. But uh, remember, fishing is right around the corner. It's time to get ready for everything. And uh, I hope to bring more of this type of information uh, to you folks as the season moves along. So get through this last stretch bad, tough stretch of cabin fever because it won't be too long until the striped bass arrive. Angler Podcast. You can find more on Fishing New York Waters at nyangler.com. Your secret spot online.